There's an old superstition among certain music lovers that Haydn is somehow not quite as profound or as moving as the other two kings of the classical age, Beethoven or Mozart in this mood perhaps. There's an obvious reason for this. Our modern ideas of profundity and of what moves us emotionally are still deeply indebted to the way both Mozart and Beethoven romanticized music. It was they who introduced the expectation that when we listened, we would hear the composer speaking, as it were, directly to us ourselves. With them, the composer's story becomes ours. But Haydn's sensibility was quite different, though this is not because his music lacks a sense of self, in fact the very opposite. For me, his music asks us to imagine not one self communicating to another, but many, many selves. Not him speaking to us individually, but all of us speaking in different ways. To my ears, Haydn was a composer like Shakespeare might have been looking with a clear yet passionate eye at the world outside himself. Some of the selves we hear in his music might be different versions of him, and some are the many different selves that each of us carries within us. But the rest are neither Haydn nor us, but those thousands of other selves we see and hear every day of our lives walking in the world around us. great delights of Haydn's music is the magical and endlessly shifting play of all these different voices, these different ideas and images, colours and melodies. But play is not the only thing that matters. The other day a friend of mine, a great performer, put it brilliantly. What makes Haydn Haydn, he said, is his wisdom. And the wisdom of Haydn is nowhere better found than in his later symphonies. Thank you. 
That's the opening of Symphony Number no. 100, The Military, written in 1794 for performance in London. There are several rather strange things about this opening. The idea of a slow beginning was not a new one. Haydn himself had done it many times. What was new was the idea of writing a slow introduction that was almost a separate movement in itself. This one lasts two minutes, more than a quarter of the duration of the whole movement. For a while, it feels as though there might not actually be any fast music to come afterwards. This feels like the beginning of something large, especially since, in a symphony in G major, we've already plunged into a majestic and surprising C minor. And out of that, into even darker, more remote territories. This enormous slow introduction is fascinating, and not just because it's long and it suggests almost an entire movement in itself, but also because it achieves two completely opposite things. In the short term, it leaves us baffled as to what could possibly follow. But in the long term, as we'll see in this program, it turns out to be the very source, the springboard for everything that follows, not only in this movement, but right through the entire symphony. Consider this striking idea from the middle of the introduction. Silence. Now listen to that silence as we hear it in the music. Meaningful silences abound in Haydn, as they do in Mozart and Beethoven. They're part of the classical style. But in this symphony, they take on a special fascination. There are so many different kinds of silence here, and they're so varied and so versatile. There's a stunning dramatic silence, for example, in the second movement. And in the minuet and trio, there's a series of little silences, like gasps of breath, lightly marking the beginnings and ends of phrases. And the last movement quite simply abounds in silences. But there are other ways, too, in which this whole symphony grows out of its mighty, slow opening. Consider what happens immediately after that imposing and majestic introduction. What could be more absurdly unexpected than that, from a world of kings and princes, we're swept into the light laughter of comic opera, 
something delightfully lowbrow. One kind of character, one kind of self, has been followed by its opposite. But then again, remember the melody from the very opening. Now take the new quick and witty melody and slow it down. It's both different and almost the same. In other words, the fast music, which seems so shocking when we first hear it, actually grows quite simply out of what's already there. Perhaps this is something of what my friend meant when he spoke of Haydn's wisdom. Like all wise ideas, it seems in retrospect such an obvious and easy thing to do, but it was Haydn who thought of it. So that sparklingly simple melody in the flute and oboes is answered, and did you notice that tiny little silence in the middle there, by the strings, who seize the same thought but give it a different colouring and a different tone of voice. Once again, different selves and different voices. And here we come to a crucial aspect of the play of Haydn's music that I mentioned earlier. For Haydn learnt to compose over years and years spent in one place, Esterhaz, the home of his employer, and the home of the many musicians he knew personally and for whom he wrote each part, each flute line or pizzicato in the double bass. In other words, he wasn't writing for imaginary performers, but for real individual people, real selves if you like. He knew his players as human beings, and he knew every move and every colour of the instruments they played. And although this symphony was written for a London orchestra, it springs, like every piece by the later Haydn, from the most intense, vivid and physical sense of how and where and from which instrument each note is coming. You can get an idea of that if you isolate what the bass instruments are doing, for example, at a moment when all they need to do is sustain one note. In Haydn's hands, that becomes something vibrant and animated, teeming with individual voices. It's one reason why this music seems to address us all as individuals, not as a mass of humanity, as Beethoven often seems to imagine his audience, but humanity broken up into many and utterly varied individuals. Each voice, each group of instruments, retains a distinctive freedom and separation. This is musical democracy, rather than a Beethovenian dictatorship. It's a group of friends working together, animated, heterogeneous and full of life.
There's an extraordinary silence there, and then a plunge into a quite new key. Remember those strange dark harmonies from the introduction, surrounding that first silence. Here we seem to be picking up on that faraway moment by moving into a similar dark flat key. You might say, I haven't got perfect pitch. I can't tell what that key is, but that's not the point. Like me, you probably can't tell how Constable gets those extraordinary deep greens behind the trees in his picture, the Haywain. But we can all feel Constable's dark colours echoing one another, and we can all feel Haydn's dark keys and harmonic colours echoing one another too. And both Constable's dark colours and Haydn's dark colours suggest the unfolding of another story, a different one from the bright story of the clearer foreground. And in this section of Haydn's first movement, the separation of the two stories seems to get sharper as light is pitted against darkness, and Haydn makes his music vault between areas of the imagination a long way apart. <laughs> The way that opening music returns is a classic example of the kind of move that Haydn makes not only surprising, but also obvious and simple. One can imagine his infuriated composer colleagues in his own day clutching their heads and wondering, why can't I think of things like that? It's hard to know how it's done, but partly it's a matter of the careful detail which at this speed seems to fly past almost unnoticed. If you slow it down, you can hear how Haydn distracts us by the simplest of means, using tiny little grace notes, which appear almost insignificant. Before sliding us seamlessly back into the original idea. But though we think we're returning home by the way we went before, 
Actually, Haydn changes many details. In fact, now it's all shockingly perfunctory. We're missing one of the most striking elements of the first time we heard this music, that moment when the whole orchestra joined in chorus, grand and dark. So, what does Haydn do next, after yet another of his brief articulating silences? Everything in this movement is brought together in that brief and critical moment. Perfunctoriness is answered by grandeur and weight, and the story of those strange dark colours and keys from the introduction, the ones that don't fit the bright foreground key of G major, here reaches its next chapter, another new key. We started with the C minor outburst in the slow introduction, then there was the B-flat major at the beginning of the development section. And now, nearly at the end of this movement, this E-flat major. It all tells another story, completely separate from the home life of this symphony in G major. These flat keys are the deep, echoing green in the background of the picture. There's something to ponder, something to store away at the back of our minds, even while the bright colours of Haydn's foreground race to the end of the movement. As I mentioned, this symphony is nicknamed the military, and the soldiers enter in the second movement, a formal open-air march of a kind that might have been played for the birthday of Haydn's employer, Prince Esterhazy, or perhaps, since this is one of the London symphonies, for King George III. It's a march in the open air because much of this music is played by the harmony, an orchestral imitation of an open-air wind band. Haydn famously once said something to the effect that he'd spent all his life trying to learn how to write for wind instruments. In fact, no other composer writes for them like he does. Again, this seems to be because of his sense of each individual line and how that line fits into the whole. It's not just an acoustic thing, but a matter of the character of the instrument and the character of the person playing it. Almost nowhere else in this symphony is it so clear that this is a whole collection of individuals coming together to play this wonderful music of the open air.
Part of the magic in this music is that the individual lines almost feel like individual life forms. Every line seems to have its own physical presence, a curious reality of its own. Like the clarinets. A few bars later, the bassoons and horns, who creep in behind the strings almost inaudibly. You can almost feel the original players playing that music at the symphony's first performance in London, more than 200 years ago. This march, not too solemn, not too slow, is in the key of C major, closely related to the symphony's home key of G. Nothing very interesting or remarkable in that, you might say. thousand points are made here at once. What had been rather innocent and simple music is now saturated with implications. The key of C minor and the grandness of the music take us straight back once again to the slow introduction to the first movement. Now, in the middle of the slow movement, we really understand why this symphony got its nickname. From being modest background music to some kind of courtly birthday party, matters have become distinctly more warlike, with the clashing percussion that was then thought of as suggesting Turkish music and the marching of Janissaries. Suddenly, this is a military symphony indeed, and even the wailing melody takes on what might then have been thought of as an oriental hue. Nowadays, it's fashionable to shudder at the imperialist implications of depicting the Orient in this stereotypical way. It hardly needs saying that this isn't much like any music that really existed to the east of the Habsburg Empire. But don't let such cultural scruples distract your ears from the pleasures to be found in the brilliance of Haydn's imagination. Take the wailing away for a moment and listen to the orchestral ferocity behind it. Every tiny part of that sound, which is just a unison G with percussion, is so richly and physically felt. This is surely another vital aspect of what my friend called Haydn's wisdom. Amazingly, there are actually very few instruments playing, but Haydn had been writing music for so long and working so deeply with players and their practicalities that he needed only the sparest of means to create the most forceful effects. It's fascinating, too, how easily he turns in an instant, like a bird in mid-air, from that fierce expression 
and transforms the same music into something intimate, many-voiced. Music as filled with painful and private longing as the previous few seconds had been imposing and public. Once again, this is music not of one overarching authorial self, but of many selves constantly flowing in and out of one another. The opening march starts up again, but this time Haydn adds all the Turkish percussion effects as well, and the marching band eventually disappears into silence. The end of the movement, the first audience must have thought. another and justly famous surprise. And it's surprising not only because it's unexpected and theatrical and bold and daring, but because it's not clear what it means. It could be a moment of comedy, and one can imagine the symphony's first audiences laughing in delight. But the smile would immediately have been wiped off their faces. sudden and breathtaking plunge into what seems in the context an utterly remote key, A-flat major. And yes, it's another of those deep, dark, green, flat keys. Here, almost at the last moment in the movement, Haydn suddenly picks up the counter-argument of the first movement. Remember that journey through strange keys, C minor, B-flat, E-flat... He's now gone one step further, A-flat. Even further away from the symphony's home key of G. As much as anything, that's what's remarkable about this moment. It's the way Haydn, by means of a coup de musique, seizes us out of the immediate context and forces us to pay attention to the unfolding of his symphony as a whole. This military slow movement comes to an imposing and official-sounding conclusion. So the minuet third movement naturally takes us back into a lighter world of dancing. <laughs>
Unlike the other three movements, this minuet and trio contains no major dramatic plunge into those dark green keys we heard earlier. But there's one strange episode in the second half of the minuet which does take us into a momentary area of harmonic wonder. It's that eerie chromatic scale in the lower strings that does it, a sudden colour wash of dark green spreading for a moment across the bright foreground. As for the last movement, this is such a masterpiece of richness and subtlety that you could spend a whole program on it alone. It's astonishing, constantly shifting its ground, playing such tricks with its tunes and ideas that it's impossible to catch up with the sheer speed of Haydn's mind. As so often with Haydn, things begin with what seems like the utmost simplicity. Once again, notice those tiny little silences. As I mentioned at the start of this program, the use of silences in this final movement is extraordinarily varied, almost dizzily inventive. There are so many, you can almost start hearing the holes in the music more than the music itself. And they have a remarkable effect here. They're like cuts in the cinema, parceling up the music into tiny packets which strain against each other, each one ready to burst into action.
I mentioned earlier how physical is Haydn's understanding of each voice and each instrument. One of the effects of this is that Haydn, and perhaps this is why lazier listeners are not so keen on him, is never a composer to wallow in. If you, the listener, lose concentration, you'll miss the connections and continuities in his music. Haydn challenges our ears to follow him into a world in which each of the selves which his music conjures up has its own place and its own logic and its own relationships, a world of astonishing freedom of thought and action. And it's here that that extraordinary dark journey, hidden within the whole four-movement structure of this symphony, finds its logical conclusion. Remember, this is a symphony in G major. Through the first and second movements, and for a brief moment in the third, there unfolded another journey, taking us through a descending series of dark, flat keys like a ladder stretching itself underneath the entire symphony. C minor, B flat, E flat, and A flat. Now Haydn's added one last step to this ladder, D flat. This lands us in a key as far away as possible from the home key of the symphony. No wonder Haydn decided that this was the moment to introduce another of his extraordinary silences. We need silence. We need time to feel this music, to feel the richness and strangeness of where we are. And when the music begins again, we find ourselves reborn into a world transformed. Suddenly, nothing seems familiar. Indeed, there's almost something hauntingly old here, as though Haydn had decided to look back more than half a century to the world of Handel and Bach. From here on, all Haydn's energies are concentrated on summing up, gathering, drawing together the mass of different threads and ideas that have still been left hanging in the air right up to this late moment in the symphony. 
For example, one element is certainly still missing. Whatever happened to those Turkish soldiers? Here they come again. One could bang on forever about this music's subtlety, mastery, richness, and of course its legendary wit. But I come back to my friend's marvellous phrase, Haydn's wisdom. This is music of wisdom, partly because it reflects the knowledge that comes from experience, musical experience of course, but also, and more importantly, experience of life, in Haydn's case, a very long life. But Haydn's wisdom is also something else, and this is perhaps why some still find him difficult. For something at the heart of his music is always disconcerting, always strangely discomforting. There's something difficult to grasp, elusive and subtle. We know that he never stood still, and I think his music makes it clear that he doesn't want any of us to do so either. He was the least complacent of artists. So if we are to experience the joy of his music, its intense pleasure and the torrent of its invention, we cannot be complacent either. We ourselves must participate in the energy with which the music is made. Haydn is unquenchably generous, but he demands that we be generous too. For if we are, then this astonishing music is open to us in all its infinite humanity. <laughs>